quite diverse. Obviously, I oversee the student well-being, uh, the well-being of the staff, including the uh, five other faculty who are full-time apart from myself, uh, the administrative and library staff. I report to a board, uh, we're an independent college, but the main role that I have is to, I guess, maintain and uh, to promote uh, the vision of the college, which is to equip people for effective Christian service, and that will be to ensure that they have deep biblical foundations, that they are able to demonstrate that they depend upon God in prayer, that they are able to relate with others in appropriate fashion, and that they can engage in different contexts where they minister. So on my way back from London, where I was at a meeting for Anglican leaders who are evangelical, uh, I visited another student in Bulgaria who's in a very different situation to why here in Singapore and I see the same things going on that I see why beginning uh, clear identification of teaching the Bible, of doing one-to-one work, of prayerfulness, of engaging with the congregation and the culture. I think uh, in Perth, Western Australia, we're a very um, prosperous economy at the moment. You perhaps know that there's a mining boom that's been going now for some five or six years. Uh, unless China and India decide they no longer want to produce goods, uh, then that boom will continue. Um, and unless other producers can come into the market, the price will stay at a good level. That means that there's a lot of money being flushed around in the whole Western Australian economy. Uh, it's strange that when money becomes more prominent and uh, easy to come by, so to speak, uh, people's thoughts about God diminish, and that's what's actually going on. And so uh, I don't know whether that's part of the reason why student numbers at our college have uh, levelled off, um, but the need of people in Western Australia is just as great as well as obviously people who train and go elsewhere. So I think the number one prayer point is that God would raise up men and women who want to serve the gospel and serve the Lord Jesus and serve the body of Christ, who want to do that in a full-time way, who are willing to lay aside their other ambitions to entrust their lives to God for their daily needs, as we're encouraged to do in the Sermon on the Mount, and that God would raise up a large army of people who will be able to teach, to proclaim, to minister one-to-one, to build communities of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in Western Australia, regionally, and also in other parts of the world. Okay, um, why don't we all bow our heads in prayer now as we pray for Trinity Theological College in Perth, uh, as well as Don, and uh, commit his sermon to us as well. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we really want to commit into your hands uh, the Theological College in Perth, uh, Trinity Theological College. Uh, We recognize that uh, it is uh, a theological college which uh, seeks to teach your Bible faithfully and raise up uh, faithful servants who will pray to you, who will do the work, the hard work of ministering faithfully from your word, who will reach out one-to-one to people and who will truly care for the people that they minister to. 
And we really pray that you'll help them to continue to get more and more numbers of people who are willing to uh, offer themselves for full-time paid Christian work. We pray for the state of uh, the church in Western Australia. We recognize that uh, with uh, the influx of money and wealth from the mining boom, uh, people will uh, increasingly become uh, more idolatrous and worship money instead of you. And they may, they may be tempted to forget about the things, the eternal things, and not seek you at all. And dear Father, we just pray for uh, many people to be raised up in Western Australia to take the gospel to these people and that their hearts will not be hardened. We pray for today's sermon. Uh, on the last of our series on 2 Corinthians, on 2 Corinthians chapter 7 today, that you really be with Don and that you teach your word faithfully and just as importantly that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts so that we may receive your message to truly understand it from your word and to apply in our lives, to not just individually but corporately. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Once again I do uh, thank Pastor Andrew for this invitation and for the opportunity to be with you and also with the uh, later congregation this morning. It's a great joy also to speak on 2 Corinthians, which is one of my favourite books, although interestingly enough I've never actually spoken on this chapter, so that was, uh, that was coincidental. And I wondered if Andrew actually knew that he didn't want to speak on it either, and that's why I'm speaking on it. I don't know that, of course, so I'm just guessing. Relationships. Relationships lie at the heart of the Christian faith. Relationships, particularly our relationship with God and our relationships with other people. When Jesus asked what was the single greatest commandment, he answered by saying, actually, there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Why did he answer a question about one commandment with two? Answer, because we cannot separate our love of God from our love of other people. Relationships are at the heart of God, Father, Son and Spirit and also at the heart of our relationships with other people. We cannot love God without loving other people. They're intimately connected. And while we know that the love of God and other people are inseparable in our minds, in our hearts and in our lives, we often find that difficult to put into practice, I think. From 2 Corinthians 7 today, I want us to think about what loving others looks like, specifically when we disagree with other people in our church. Now, this is a sensitive topic, but it's what Paul is actually talking about here, I think. How he went about engaging in disagreements as the congregation disagreed with him. What did he, as their apostle, do about it? I think disagreements happen in any church for a very simple reason. We're still sinful. So we have to work out how to deal with it. Some of our disputes are big. Some of them are actually worth having an ongoing battle over. And I think here of what we might call gospel battles. Battles over the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
over what it means to be a child of God, as to what it is to continue on in the Christian life, as to what a full Christian life looks like. These are important things to keep speaking about and, if necessary, disagreeing about. But there are other things which are not so large. Sadly, it's these things which go on and on. Some of them we find fault in the other person in order to justify our own hardness of heart. And we speak about others, to others, about them, in order to create a group feeling and again justify our own hardness of heart. I once visited a small church in Perth. Uh, Perth's the city of about 2 million people. This church had around about that many people, about 12 people. And it was in a lovely suburb. The building and premises were quite attractive. And I said to one of the elders after I'd spoken, I said, well, why is it that uh, there aren't as many people here today as there might normally be? And he was a small man, well, for me anyway, about that tall, and he looked up there and said, our problems go back to 1932. I said, don't you think it's time to sort them out? 1932, can you imagine arguing about something for 70 or 80 years? Many times these issues land on the pastor's desk or at the elders' meeting, unresolved. We need to know how to manage our relationships and to learn how to get through our disagreements. Relationships are at the heart of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul, as you've seen in your series, faced a number of challenges as he tried to minister to the Corinthian congregation. There was the infiltration of false apostles. You'll hear a little bit more about that as you go on in the book. They had flamboyant style, impressive rhetoric. Uh, They made Paul out to be a hobo. There were people who had been really unimpressed with Paul's style. He just didn't kind of gel with them. There was a group in the church who called themselves believers but actually were acting in immoral fashion, going to pagan cults and festivals and even participating with prostitutes. When you get on to chapters 8 and 9, you'll find out that they had reneged on a promise to support financially a pledge that Paul had made to the Jerusalem church. There are problems. On any or all of these matters, Paul, in one way, would have been justified to say, you know what, I think it's time I moved on from you Corinthian Christians. I've had it up to here. But he doesn't. He doesn't give up on them. Why not? Let's go to the first point. The reason that Paul does not give up on them is because they are bound together. Paul and the Corinthians in Christ and they are bound together in death and in life. Uh, The uh, friend of Paul who's in his team, Titus, has just returned from Corinth where he delivered to the Corinthians a letter of rebuke from Paul. This letter of rebuke 
appears to have had its intended effect. However, there are still some people in the Corinthian church who are suspicious of Paul. But instead of turning away from them, he says to them, uh, and requests of them, that they open up their heart to him. Verse 2, Make room in your hearts for us. What does making room mean? It means don't be so cramped in your affections. Be more affectionate towards us. Don't hold back your affections. Uh, In chapter 6 he says, O Corinthians, our mouths are open wide before you. In other words, look down. Look in. Look at our hearts. You will see that our hearts are open towards you. We are open towards you. Why are not you open towards us? Open your hearts to us. But why should they do that? Why should they be reconciled to the one who had written such a harsh letter to them? Reason is in verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would die or live with you. Now, your translation has mixed up the order. It is die and live with you. Not live and die with you. Why is that the order? Why does Paul say that we would die and live with you? Paul mentions death before life because he's not talking to them about their physical life, but their spiritual life. And their spiritual life follows the pattern of Christ. For in Christ we die to sin, we're buried with Christ, and we are raised to life with Christ. And Paul puts the basis of his appeal before the congregation at Corinth to say that he and they are bound together in the death and resurrection of Christ. They are inseparable from Christ and they are inseparable from one another. In our worldly life, we live and then we die. But in our life with Christ, we die and then we live. And that death has already taken place for those of us who have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ there is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That is not just true for the individual, but for the whole congregation of those who believe in Christ. They are bound with Christ and are inseparable from one another. So the basis of Paul's appeal for open-heartedness is what they already have in Christ. Christians don't need to create unity. We don't need to find ways of becoming one. We're already one. And we must realise that And our biggest job is to prevent this unity, not to make unity. Note too that Paul says here that the Corinthians are on his heart. 
to die together and live together. This is not just some theological proposition that Paul's making. Something that he might write in an exam at Trinity Theological College and get a good mark for. This is something that affects him personally. And you possibly have been um, looking in Second Corinthians and realised this really is his most personal letter. We find out so much about his emotional inside in this letter. So because of what Christ has done for Paul and the Corinthians, dying and rising for them, Paul is bound to the Corinthians forever. I'm told that one of the things that is drummed into people who are in the armed service is that they must look after their platoon or their team or their unit. There's a sense in which they must live together and die together. Brothers and sisters, we too are in a battle. And our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the instrumentalities and the powers, and against the evil one, who uses the opportunity amongst us of our division and our pride and our self-justification in order to achieve his goals. It's easy to turn up on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday Bible study and actually forget the reality that's in front of us. That the person who's sitting on your left hand or your right hand this morning is actually part of your body. Just imagine the person next to you is your arm. Can you ignore your arm? No, it's still there looking at me. It's talking to me all the time. I can't ignore my arm. Neither can you ignore your brother or sister because they are bound to you in Christ and you are bound to them. We have died together in Christ and we've been raised to new life together. That's not just something that we experience on the last day, that is something that we have here and now. So the unity that we have in Christ is the basis of Paul's appeal to them and that's the foundational truth that enables us to move out and become reconciled to one another. And there are two points that Paul makes about that and they're the second two points that I want to make. So the first thing that comes out of that, my second point, is that because of our unity in Christ, we seek repentance that results in salvation. I wonder if you've ever written or received a letter of rebuke. Uh, I've had to do both. And they're not very pleasant. They're not pleasant to receive and they're not pleasant to write. In an era of emails, we correspond very quickly in SMS. It's all very quick and snappy. But when someone has deliberately handwritten or typed out and printed and sealed in an envelope and put a stamp on it and put it into the post box and it comes into your mailbox and you open it up, it's a very different experience from bing, you have a new message. A very weighty thing to have a letter 
come to you, particularly a letter of rebuke. We don't have Paul's letter of rebuke, his severe letter, his letter of tears. But we guess from 2 Corinthians that it was actually rebuking the Corinthian church as a whole because they did not support Paul and stand up for Paul when he criticised people who were being immoral. And one man opposed Paul and the church did not criticise him. And so Paul was humiliated. He retreated from Corinth and went back to Ephesus. And instead of visiting Corinth again, he went off in a different direction and sent Titus with his letter to them. But Paul's aim in this letter was not to condemn them, but to bring them to repentance. Repentance from sin arises from what he calls godly sorrow. And Paul carefully distinguishes godly sorrow from worldly sorrow. In fact, Pastor Andrew in his Bible has those two words circled, so that makes it easier for me to see. (laughs) Verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Salvation or death? Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. Two different kinds of sorrow. Regret. Regret is not repentance. Uh, In the Western culture that I live in, politicians and others, business people who uh, do uh, perform atrocious things say, we regret that this took place. That's not repentance. Regret is self-focused. Repentance is other people or towards God, God God-focused. There are two parts to repentance. Confession of sin and changing behaviour. Confession of sin, what is that? Confession is to tell the truth. To tell the truth to God or to tell the truth to another person. I actually did this or said this and that was wrong. That's called confession. I admit I have done wrong. But we find that so hard. Something in us called pride pulls such a strong handbrake on that that the words will not come out of our mouths. But that is necessary if we are to have salvation. Unless we repent by telling the truth about our actions and not hiding it, we cannot be confident of our salvation. The second part is changing our behaviour. Resolving to prevent what happened happening again through prayer, but also through being accountable to one another. Looking to one another to prevent us from committing the same things again. When someone sins against another person and does not repent, Matthew 18, Jesus 
says it's up to the rest of us to try to expose the truth. We have a community responsibility. It's not just his problem. We have to investigate matters carefully. And Jesus makes clear how we should do this. First of all, the individual should try to talk to the other individual who's offended them. Then they should perhaps talk to two of the leaders in a church and say, I could be wrong here, but um, did you witness what I witnessed? I'd like you to investigate that, please. Very quietly. And if the person repents and admits that they have done wrong, then it is sorted out. But finally, it is a corporate matter. I don't know anybody who finds it easy to tell another person that they are in the wrong. It's one of the jobs of a leader to have to do that, unfortunately. As a principal of a theological college, it comes to my charge to do that. But also, I'm glad that people correct me when I'm in the wrong. You're never quite sure when you're going to criticise another person or comment on what they've done, whether you're going too far, do I have the facts straight, will I cause more harm than good, what will other people think about me? All these questions come to your mind. And then of course there are some people who are quite prickly. Do you know what I mean by that? They react when you talk to them. Yeah, but I saw you do that too. Come straight back at you. I've had that said enough to me that this is what I say now is I'm glad you told me that and if you'd like to complain about me to my principal or my boss, my chairman, I'd like you to do that. But at the moment I'm talking about what you did. We're very good. We're like slippery eels, aren't we? Of getting out of our little stuck corners. Of course, there are some people who rebuke badly. They're too harsh, too quick, too condemning, too uncompromising. They're not doing it out of compassion. They're not weeping on the inside. Um, I have a friend who speaks about these people that they're those who mix up the order They go, ready, fire, aim. (laughs) But you know, many of us lack the courage to actually say anything at all. And we turn the blind eye to things and we just let them go on. Even when the evidence is overwhelming. And we even go and tell another person rather than tell the offending person themselves. We're afraid. But our fear of the other person exploding, becoming indignant, gossiping about us, that fear is kind of like the fear of avoiding going to the doctor when we know something's wrong. It may lead to death. Paul says that because of our unity in Christ 
rebuking people when it's absolutely needed is nothing other than a ministry of the gospel. For what people need and what I need when I have strayed and sinned is for you to tell me the gospel and to call me to repentance so that I might have life. Christians in sin should be called to repent but they should also be promised salvation. Because Paul and the Corinthians are united together, he calls them to repent in his letter about about how they have mistreated him. They bring the offending person out and call them to account. They have completed that task. And so Paul says to them, well done. That leads me to my third principle, which will be quite brief. Because of our unity in Christ, we not only call others to repentance with the goal of salvation, we also assume on our hearts the best about them. Note that that's what Paul does in his last paragraph here. When Paul was sending Titus off with his letter of rebuke, He said to Titus in verse 14, I boasted to him about you. I told him in advance that you would receive this letter well, that you would turn back. He assumed the best about the Corinthians, not the worst. His motivation, therefore, was genuine love. Have you ever noticed how one negative comment about someone leads to another and another and another and eventually you can find nothing good in them at all? We start to assume the worst about people. But we are bound to those people who are Christians for eternity They have died with Christ. They've been raised with Christ. We can only assume the best about them until we have genuine evidence that it's not true. And even then, notice that Paul has other problems to deal with, with the Corinthians. He's got a long list. But he does not say, ah, they're guilty in this one, they're guilty in all the others. Or, Because of all those bad things, I won't look at this one thing that they've done which is right. That's maturity, friends. But actually it's love. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul made room for the Corinthians in his heart and now he asks them to respond in the same way. Working things out with Christians who have offended us or have offended the body of Christ is not easy, it's very painful and tricky. But we must do it when needed. We're not to be on the hunt all the time, you know, always looking out for the bad things, trying to fossick things out. There is due process and there will be due process in your congregation here. And we're to think the best of one another. 
In our call to worship this morning, um, George reminded us of Romans 12. That our reasonable service of God is not something that we pursue as individuals, but rather as a whole congregation. And the whole congregation is about being transformed by the renewing of our minds, not only through teaching, but also through correction. And last of all, obviously today we are coming together at the Lord's table. A great reminder of our salvation that's been won for us in Christ through his death, the giving of his own body and blood, but also a great reminder of the unity we already have in Christ and that we share together. So let's pause for a moment as we reflect on this word from the Apostle Paul and as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we find ourselves frequently overlooking our own faults and finding them in other people and when our own faults are pointed out to us we can become prickly and hide from them and we ask your forgiveness for that because you see everything and your word cuts even between the division of soul and spirit of bone and marrow We pray, Father, that if we are ever called upon to speak to a brother or sister who has indeed sinned against you and against the body, that we would do so with wisdom and gentleness and yet we would do so with a desire for the people of God to have salvation through repentance. Heavenly Father, as we come to your table this morning, we're reminded that we all need your forgiveness. That none of us are able to look into a brother's eye to pull out a speck because each one of us has a log poking out of our own eye. And yet, in the light of your truth and your word, we must speak the truth to one another in love. I thank you for this congregation, for the ministry of its pastors and elders and I pray, Father, that you would bring it continually to maturity in Christ, to serve one another and to bring the lost to know the Lord Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen.